Hi, I'm Professor Beck Straw. And I'm Professor Eric Bronson, and you're listening to Prison Breakdown. Two, three, break! Eat the spoil is fun, but we're gonna bust out of here! Two, three, break! Welcome to Prison Breakdown. Ahoy. Welcome back. How's everybody doing? Outstanding. How about yourself? Fantastic. It's a gorgeous day out here on the bay. The water is nice and flat. Sun is is deceptively shining off the water because, you know, it's only 40 degrees outside, but man, does it look gorgeous out there. Eric, you ever think about becoming a boatsman? Uh, Yeah, unfortunately, we don't have deep pockets so um but yeah i would love to be out there on the water that that's kind of my happy place get one of those those fun like uh oh i anything i just give me a raft and i'll hang out on on the water and i'll be a happy man it's kind of a happy place out there you know be out there with my thoughts it's kind of dangerous but (laughs) (laughs) it's great (laughs) (laughs) so yeah, I could see you becoming a boatsman. I think you've got it in you. Yeah, although there is one small problem: motion sickness. Oh, you get you get seasick. Oh yeah, horrible. You know, there, we I ruined a, a deep sea fishing trip with my parents one time down in Florida. We went off the went, went off <laughs> on the Atlantic. I think we were in Daytona. I don't know. We went out, and I don't know. We had been out probably for about two two and a half hours, and. And I decided to, uh, you know, we're, we're sitting there fishing and all of a sudden, you know, I guess I was going to go chumming for some, for some fish or or sharks and right over the edge and just all kinds of (laughs) awful vomit and, Mm. you know, lots of entertainment for the other passengers on the boat. (laughs) So, (laughs) but the, the, you know, the thing is I was a trooper. I didn't stop fishing. You know, you can't waste that kind of money when you're deep sea fishing. Just because you got a little tummy ache, but I don't. That can ruin your day. <laughs> okay, that can you, you, you know make that, yourself miserable. Yeah, exactly. The motion sickness is just awful. And the only thing that cures it is sleeping. So that was a long damn day. <laughs> now tell me, does it attract the fishes when you yak I, off I, the side of a boat? I don't know. I don't. I can't remember. That was you know <clears throat> a long time ago. I, uh, that was in my early twenties and I don't, I don't have great memory <laughs> of, of what was going on when I was in my early twenties. I'm, I'm really, yeah, I'm really starting to get up there. Next birthday, I get my AARP card. Oh, snap. Yeah. Wow. I'm old. Yeah. So you two youngsters, I, yeah. I don't know. You can probably remember your twenties, but that's getting hard for me. I have trouble remembering yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> you think it's it's the concussions it could be it could be i don't know you know it could be just the beatings we take from our students you know 
asking for a point here, <laughs> a point there on their exams. <laughs> oh, just scrimping. Yes. Yeah. Yes. They're, they're, they're a little they, they nickel and dime me. Yeah, exactly. Can I get two points for this? <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of yesterday, even though I can't re- <laughs> All right, fine. Re- remember yes. stuff, there's some interesting things happening in Washington yesterday. So it's time for, I think, a little news off the razor wire. Fresh news, hot off the razor wire. All right. So in a shocker, of course, heavy emphasis on sarcasm there. The Supreme Court on Monday refused to weigh in on an inmate who was uh, locked up in solitary confinement from 20, let's see, 2013 to 2016. Um, and uh, they refused to weigh in on his case because he was solitary confinement and in, in Illinois, they denied him any exercise for a three-year period. And so he was suing the suing the state um, saying that they violated his right not to be inflicted with cruel and unusual punishment under the Constitution's Eighth Amendment. And um, court had a six to three conservative majority. Again, another shocker, right? Right along party lines. And, uh, you know, it it really is, um, you know, you had the three liberal judges who said, you know, you know, this was unusually severe. And then you had, you know, the other, the six conservative judges who um, said this is not something that they need to uh, to take action on. So, um, you know, it's, it's, really a, it's really a disappointing situation that they aren't going to look at something when it's um, definitely impacts uh, somebody's mental health. And this is an inmate who, uh, um, was already experiencing mental health issues. His name is Michael jo- uh, Johnson, um, who initially started off representing himself in the court system, which is, you know, it's pretty impressive that he was able to get, um, any type of traction in the courts by representing himself. But, um, eventually he, he was able to hire some other lawyers when they were able to see what was going on in his, um, in this case, but it's, it's really a sad situation that, you know, somebody who, um, has mental health issues locked up inside solitary confinement, isn't getting any exercise for, for three years. Right. Think about how much that would break your brain. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. But the fact that they won't even hear the case, um, and listen to it, that's, uh, that's really sad. I mean, that's something that definitely needs to be talked about is individuals who are locked up in solitary confinement. We need to figure out ways to stimulate their mind a little bit. That is, it's so damaging. Um, I understand that people do things inside prisons to, to be locked up inside the prison within the prison, but we need to come up with a better model of how to handle those issues. Um, Cause it's just so dangerous for their mental health. What if we gave them like word searches every day? <laughs> Sudoku's. Will that fix the problem? <laughs> yeah. Maybe a crossword puzzle here and there. Something, right? Give them something to stimulate their minds. That would certainly help. Um, something. 
Yes. But but it is it, it is becoming more of an issue. And we'll even talk about this, how it's it's uh, faced Rhode Island inmates. We'll, we'll talk about that today as our topic of the day is as uh, Rhode Island Department of Corrections. But uh, focusing on this this current issue, it is interesting and in that the state that the not the state, the, the Supreme Court has had so many issues with facing corrections over time, the U.S. Supreme Court. And for so long, they were hands off. They, they said, nah, let's let other branches of government handle it. And in more recent years, they have been generally still hands off in a different way where they say, we're not actually qualified to weigh in on prisons. Let's leave that up to prison administrators to figure out. And that doesn't mean prison administrators are always doing the best job. Right, right. But they have been so hands off when it pertains to inmate rights, with the exception of a handful of cases here and there. Like, um, I believe there was one, a guy had a cellmate who was smoking a couple packs a day. And this guy was like, hey, I'm being exposed constantly to secondhand smoke. I, I've been convicted of a crime, but I don't deserve to be exposed to a carcinogen like this. And the Supreme Court actually said, yeah, this guy shouldn't be exposed to secondhand smoke. But other than a few landmark cases like that, my understanding is that they've been largely hands off. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, and, and on one hand, I can I can see that, you know, because I'm sure as, you know, two individuals who have worked in those institutions, we, when lawmakers and um, judges you know, change the law or impact the law or do anything having to do with, you know, the way um, prisons need to operate or inmates need to be handled, whatever it might be. Um, they don't see the impact of it because it doesn't, in fact, you know, in, you know, it's not have any direct impact on their lives. It does on the people who work there and it does on the, on the inmates. So I can see why they could say, Hey, we, we need to be hands off, but, when it comes to things like this, where we are, we are looking at, you know, uh, you know, a right here, you know, that they should not be subjected to cruel, and unusual punishment. You know, I think it, you know, it'd be a pretty hardcore person to say that, yeah, there's nothing cruel and unusual about not letting them get outside for three years. Um, and, and even, I don't know how many, how many different, uh, so, you know, supermax or, um, or high security type of institutions you've been to where they've had these exercise uh, yards, if you want to call it that, whatever, whatever the heck they are. Um, you know, it, I remember down in Texas, they, they take them from their cell down to a 12 foot by 12 foot by 12 foot cage. Um, and they were isolated in that, but they could move around. They could do things. Um, but that was what the recre recreation was. It it was simply move them from their cell to a you know twelve foot by twelve foot by twelve foot cage, um, so that they could get some form of exercise and be outside in the sunlight a little bit. Uh, which I'm you know again only for an hour, um, a couple times a week. But it was something that the inmates were very grateful for, and they were able to exercise and you know help them keep their you know, their sanity. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I've, I've not actually had the opportunity to tour any kind of supermax facility before I've been to maybe a dozen or more prison tours, but never, never anything supermax. Something yeah. like that would be fascinating to see. I think it, I think it was a LeBlanc unit 
down in Texas. I think it's, that was the name. It's of like it. the black box within the black box. Yeah, definitely. It's it's really it's a different. Uh, it's you know it's sad, but it's uh, you understand it's necessary at times um, for the safety and security of the institution and the staff that work there. But it's uh, you can just see the folks that are in those places just deteriorating quickly. Have you been on a death row? Is it similar on death row that you've seen? Uh, so I've only been on three death rows. Um, Kentucky, only. Louisiana. Only. <laughs> yeah. Just three visits. Kentucky's, and that was a long time ago. Uh, Louisiana, and I can't, I'm trying to think what was the third. I wasn't in Texas. They, for, you know, whatever reason, for, for a state that, is so proud of the death penalty. You figure they would show off their death row, but it, um, I can't remember where the third one. I, anyways, I I've been to definitely been to the one in Louisiana and, and Kentucky. Maybe it was Ohio. Ohio, 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 Ohio. I can't remember, but um, the thing about death row is uh when i was there when I, whenever i've been on death row the cells are a little bit larger um and both of the places um kentucky and louisiana they had bars so there seemed to be a lot more light you know it wasn't the full closed cell with just a wooden door or steel door um uh so that it was the bars and granted that's far more dangerous for the staff um it seemed to let a lot more light in. And so it didn't seem as oppressive. Um, probably didn't seem as closed in for the, for the inmates. Maybe. Um, I don't know. It's, uh, for me, it, at least those two units that I was on, I can, that I can remember. I wish I could remember where the third one was. Again, there's that memory that you're talking about all the concussions. Um, it, uh, it just seemed to be, uh, one of those situations where they, they had more light, they had more, um, more openness and it didn't seem as, you know, as oppressive as, as the super max or uh, the admin max. Um, so yeah, that's rough. Um, also I'm curious in terms of down from the razor wire, any update on those Georgia inmates? All right. So now update three of the four inmates have now been, found all right the third inmate um who escaped from the central georgia detention center back in october was captured sunday morning um in augusta georgia all right and um originally let's see i'm i'm trying to find out which one of the it looks like the individual who uh joey fournier um, is still missing. And he was the one who was suspected of, uh, I believe he was suspected of murder or being held for murder charges. Um, so he is still, he is still on the run. Interesting. So any, any news, like, uh, what were the conditions of the, other two being apprehended. It just says that they were found. Uh, one was arrested in a Buckhead apartment. He was just hanging out with a friend, it looks like. Um, and then the the second one um, 
it just the second one was arrested also in an apartment um and so it just looks like they they were able to track them down do a little bit of surveillance and find them it doesn't look like anything you know dramatic happened and they were based on surveillance were able to find them and close in on them and and arrest them without incident which i'm sure they're going to uh be held in a much more secure facility or in a much more secure place in in the facility um than before but it's it's if we think about this this is we're going on a month now that the four of them escaped because it was it was october 16th so we're we're I mean, we're almost at a full month. This is kind of, it's kind of shocking um, that, that that this individual has been. Right. Does um, it stay out that long? Yeah. I mean, you never hear about that. You hear, you know, eight hours, six hours. You know, they, they went right to their, their their wife's house or their girlfriend's house or their mom's house and they bust them. But this guy, uh, he's 52 years old, uh, white man with gray hair and blue eyes standing Five foot nine inches tall and weighing 140 pounds. Oh, that's that's kind of thin. Oh, <laughs> kind of thin. Yeah. yeah, maybe he He's blew away. Build. Yeah, <laughs> he blew over into Alabama <laughs> or something. I don't, I don't know. Um, but they're now they're offering seventeen thousand dollars for information that leads to his arrest. So. If we had that information, we could we could find out a little bit about them. Yeah, we've become so. the bounty hunter cast. Exactly. That, that could be us. We'll be cool. Yep. Sounds good to me. Yeah, so that that's all the razor wire news that Thank we have. Thank you for that update. Absolutely. All the news that's fit to be heard here. <laughs> Shall we move on to the topic of the day? Absolutely. The Rhode Island Department of Corrections. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's start from the top. So, Rhode Island. We've had these various forms of town jails, county jails that have stemmed back to early colonial times. But our first state-operated prison didn't come around until 1838. It was built in Providence, Rhode Island, our beloved Providence. It quickly turned out to be an unsuitable facility, and the state said, ah, let's, let's buy some land over in Cranston. And so there, there was a little village called Howard in Cranston at that time in 1869. They, they, they bought all this land and they built several facilities there, which eventually became uh, the, the campus that we have now for the Rhode Island Department of Corrections. So what you're saying is and even at in the, the time they built uh, 1860s Providence housing market was too expensive for the state Department of Corrections to afford to be able to put an institution up. <laughs> it's very desirable. Let, let's find some cheap land in Cranston. They were forecasting out to the future. Right. They knew what was coming. They knew down yeah, the so, line. So they got the cheap land in Cranston. Yeah. This this property in Providence was going to be worth way too much money. Yeah. So let, you put the prisoners way on down in Cranston, which is stone's throw away. So, so at the time, after, after they bought the land in 1869, they built a handful of facilities. They had like a state workhouse where inmates would do labor. They built the, the House of Corrections, uh, State Hospital for the Insane, the State Almshouse, which became like the state infirmary later on, a state prison, and then they built a Providence County Jail and then some reform schools, one for boys, one for girls. And the the State Workhouse and the, the House of Corrections, they, they held men, they held women, and it was also 
used for the women's county jail and for state prison inmates. And then over time, like workhouse inmates got phased out. And over time, we've seen this massive phasing out of all these facilities, except for one, which is our our maximum security facility, which I'll, I'll get to in a minute. But at this time, uh, Rhode Island has six facilities. I, I should say the Rhode Island Department of Corrections itself was established as an organization in 1972. Uh, we are a small state and beloved Rhode Island. And because of that, we have what is called a unified system. Eric, would you like to explain what a unified system is? All right. So it's a unified system is when we have, um, and it's rather unique because generally speaking, most states do not have these. It's where the state has control of all the offenders, uh, prison, jail. So that means they would have control over uh, misdemeanor and felony offenders as well as all of those awaiting further processing, which we know seems to be a rather large percentage of the individuals being held in jails. Um, So they haven't been convicted of a crime yet or pled guilty yet. Um, But that's the unified system is those awaiting trial, those who have been sentenced, and those under some form of community supervision all fall under one department, and that is the state of Rhode Island's Department of Corrections. Sure. So it's not split out into county jails. It's all run by the state. And we only have these in six states. It, it's Rhode Island, Alaska, Connecticut, Delaware, Hawaii, and Vermont. And it's, you know, the, the, the one that I think boggles my mind the most is your all's home state of Alaska, because it makes sense in these other ones, because those are tiny states in ter- geographically, not population wise, but geographically. And with how sparse the population is there in Alaska to have a unified system there just seems really be really damn difficult. But I I mean, you might tell me differently that it works great for Alaska. I don't know that anything works great for Alaska right now, but (laughs) I think, I think one of the, one of the reasons that they would do it is they have such a small population base and it's so sparsely populated. So pockets here and there, these villages and Maybe it just makes more sense than having bigger jails run by any of these smaller municipalities. We, we don't have counties up there either. So there's no sheriffs to run jails. It's it's often it will often be like state police out out in the, the bush. So. That's the system they've got it. It's imperfect. I don't know what a better system would be, though. Yeah, I don't I don't know. It's it's for those small populations. It, it makes sense. Um, and. I guess if if it's a state with a larger population, you know, such as, you know, some place like New York or Florida or Texas, you know, it would be hard to have one unified system. It would just you think it would just be a monster system. Um but uh right. I don't you know I I just it's you know, it's interesting that such a place like Alaska that's so vast would would have a unified system is just I don't know. It's interesting. Um uh, are there any private prisons up in Alaska? That's a very good question. Hmm. Not to the best of my knowledge. It's something I can look up real quick. I just, you know, that that seems like it would be perfect hunting grounds for the greedy, for the greedy private prison corporations. So, Alaska voters have actually turned down private prisons on a few occasions, but in 2020, Republican Governor Mike Dunleavy 
his administration had this plan that they put out there to house Alaska inmates in private prisons outside of the state. Yeah, it just, you know, you figure with the political leanings of the state that it would just be it'd be an easy sell to the folks. It surprised me that they voted it down. Alaska is very interesting in its politics. It's, it's, it's something I still pay attention to where from the outside they look dark red and then some on some issues they are actually somewhat centrist yeah that's interesting And this might just be one of those issues maybe you know maybe they understood that bringing in a corporation like that to to run an industry um isn't something that's good for the community or jobs whatever but we i should stop derailing us and talking about the largest state let's get back to the smallest state small but mighty rhode island (laughs) small but mighty yes indeed so rhode island we have six prisons here no private prisons no but we have six prisons run by the state they employ around 1400 people there are five male facilities and there is one female facility so let's go through them we're going to start with the minimum security facility This facility, it's just called Minimum Security. It's the name of the facility. It's a converted hospital building that opened in 1978. And in 1989, they said, we should open up another facility. So they opened up another one next door. And guess what? They made a bridge in 1992 to make a super facility. The super facility. Did it wear a cape? (laughs) (laughs) I, I like to think they make the inmates wear capes. Yeah. Just to make them feel super. I like it. So the facility. It can hold 710 inmates, average population of 123, and each inmate costs around $157,000 per year. That's nothing. Incarcerate there. That's nothing. That's that's just. Uh, I mean, come on. That's pocket in the jar. That's pocket change. I mean, think about the people who live in the state and all the money we have. That's nothing. That's just a drop yeah. in the bucket for Rhode Island. <laughs> They're just bleeding us dry. <laughs> I mean, if you if you think about the state that has a Taylor Swift home in it, we can afford one hundred fifty thousand dollars per inmate per year. I wonder if the wonder if the average person in the state knows that's how much we're paying there. Yeah, I don't think they do. It, I I heard an interesting fact yesterday, where I believe it's if if you are earning. Less than $100,000 a year for your household. The only town in Rhode Island where you can still feasibly buy property is Central Falls. I think that was a fact. That's crazy. That's not a whole lot of options then. No, I I think it's one option unless you want to leave. (laughs) We do have one private prison facility that is federally run. It does not necessarily house Rhode Islanders. It houses federal inmates. inmates. It's a detention facility. Federal inmates from... It's it's located in Central Falls, Rhode Island. Right. It's run by the Federal Bureau of Prisons and ICE, the Navy, and the Pequot Tribe. Interesting. Do you know what the Pequot Tribe has to do with the prison? So there, since that's a federal, you know, if you commit a crime on federal land and their land over in Connecticut is federal as Pequot land or Pequot Nation. So you commit a crime there at the casino, you will, you can potentially be held up in Central Falls at the Wyatt Center. 
back to the minimum security discussion. So all offenders at the minimum security facility are either employed at the institution or they're on work release unless they are medically certified as unable to work. Now, Eric, would you mind discussing work release yeah. for those so unfamiliar? Work release is it's great because generally um, it's a way for individuals to start getting back out into the community after a, a sentence of, let's say, we just say five years. So they've been locked up at medium, probably worked their way down with good behavior, completion of programs, whether they got their degree, GED, um, uh, maybe picked up a, a certificate while they were incarcerated at the uh, work and, you know, learn how to use the HVAC system and install HVAC. And so now this work release program gets them in touch with companies here in Rhode Island that will help them get that start. So they will hire them um, and they'll go out during the day for five days a week and work in, uh, in the community or at the state uh, with, excuse me, with, with a private company and they will uh, assist them by keeping them employed for a few months and prior to their release into society. And then a lot of times these turn into permanent jobs or just strong recommendations or resume builders for, for a lot of these individuals that don't have a resume at all other than their, their uh, work release program. So uh, they're, they're really good programs um, in that they're, reintroducing the individuals into society rather than keeping them caged up all day. That's pretty cool. I think maybe we should play with those ideas more for like, like on a wider scale, not just minimum security. Yeah. Maybe we look at medium security. You're on good behavior. You've had a good record. Let's do something. Definitely. Let's get you back out there. Let's get you some degree of autonomy. Let's get you some job skills Yeah. because we are wasting so much human potential. Right. Right. And, and, you know, and it, you know, it's not like That's they're just release. throwing these yeah. individuals out into any type of job. They're, you know, they're picking career fields where um, that where uh, the industry will hire ex um, ex or ex cons that have been locked up for a given time period or on probation or parole. And you know, so they're they're picking and choosing which industry to put them to work at. So it, it makes a makes a lot of sense um, which ones they're they're moving them towards. And again, it's, it's great to put them out there in society and get them working. Absolutely agree. And of the inmates there who are not employed, they're either seeking employment or they are working on some kind of public service project for the facility, rehabilitating like a government building, uh, refurbishing it, or I don't know, patching a pothole, something like that, something for the state. So that is our minimum security facility. The next facility we are going to be discussing is the John J. Moran Medium Security Facility, which Eric and I recently had the chance to tour. There's a lot to say about the facility. Yeah, it's it's a, actually uh, you know it's it's a it's a you know well established you know opened in the early '90s, well established in terms of you know um, expanding on the on the uh, programs available for the inmates. One of the things that um, that I think is rather impressive is when we toured uh, last week that we're going through uh, the prison industries. They're still using the prison industries for the inmates to 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 complete, you know, uh, some type of training. So the the ASE um, 
the auto training, uh, HVAC training. Uh, I, I really love the, the, that they can go through there and get a culinary certificate, um, in food industry that that's something that I think is, is really going to assist the individuals when they return to society. And I think, you know, the, you know, that one hallway that we walked down over in, um, over in the programs area, I think was really shocking to the students and that how clean everything was, you know, they're, you know, I, I guess for a lot of the students it, it whenever they take a prison visit for the first time, they're, they're always shocked about how clean prisons generally are. And th- this one in that new area, of course, you know, it hasn't had much time to get dirty, but it's, it's shockingly clean when you go over into the, to the dining area and, and back into the, um, you know, the auto or where they're making the license plates, which I still, you know, it's still, you, you hear about them making license plates at, at prisons years ago. It still always shocks me when you walk into a place where they're actually doing that. Yeah. Re- real talk. I've been to several prisons. I've never seen a license plate shop before. Yeah. And it's, they are going and you get to see the whole production line. You get to yeah. see inmates working it out. Yeah. They, they are going at it. I mean, they are, Pressing these- license plates. <laughs> so, what I love are the yeah, we we have these cool new shark license plates. That you right. Get to see, like like front line of it, the empty license plate, ready yeah. to go. Yeah. What I, what I love are the the fun ones that they make that they just put up on the wall there. Um, you know where they're just ma- printing samples where they're learning how to use the the presser and the new technology because it's they're now the vinyl plates rather than the old ones. Um, so it was, I remember last year, the year before when they trans transitioned over to those, to that new, um, technology, um, it was a big deal at the prison getting all of that in so that they could properly, um, properly press those plates. It was, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it was something that really seemed to take a while to get going. Now they're, they're going at it and it just, they're just rolling out plates. They're ready to, they're ready to get those cars out there on the road. Yeah. Really cool to see that. Um, I, I was also impressed by their upholstery shop was fascinating where they, they restore furniture. Their auto body shop, super interesting. They, they've got all these these tools, some state-of-the-art equipment, and inmates are allowed to check out the tool, and you see this outline of where the tool is on the wall. So at the end of the day, they can run an inventory. They make sure every knife in the kitchen is accounted for and going back right where it came from, every soup ladle, everything. Yeah, is is going back where it came from, fitting this notch on the wall, and if something's missing, then nobody moves, and they search everybody for it. They make sure that everything is accounted for. It's it's really a, a good idea for security. Yeah, I, I wish I was that organized where I could have a shadow board of all my tools and just know where things are supposed to go, but you know they just get thrown and. <laughs> You know, there's a wrench there, the hammer over there. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I'm just as bad as the kids with them. They just, who the hell knows where they're going to end up. <laughs> so, but man, that is, that is, I mean, you think about the, I, again, another thing that shocked the students was the access to the tools and the access to the cutlery over there in dining, um, but again, when they see how well organized it is, I think it, you know, it makes a whole lot of sense that we're, you know, look, we're teaching them how to use these things for when they get out. 
Um, sure, it could be used as a weapon, but you know the prison system, the DOC is doing a good job of tracking all of those tools and um, the cutlery or whatever you know the utensils inside the dining hall. Absolutely, and they've got the the kitchen itself is state of the art two million dollar kitchen where they're showing inmates how to make meals, and inmates are plating meals and and cooking for the entire facility which is crazy to think about when there's this average population of roughly 750 inmates. That's a lot of people to be cooking for. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, it's a real, you know, you're, you're really moving people through there. Um, you know, and you, you, if you're able to, to do it without a hitch, which they do three times a day for the most part, the people who are preparing those meals, which are obviously the inmates, are are learning some really valuable skills on how to prepare uh, food for large numbers of people. And you know, it's a good thing that they came up with that, you know, that school in there for the culinary art, so that they can, you know, walk out of there with something saying, "Hey, this is something I prepared to do. I can definitely work in, you know, the food industry when I when I leave." But uh, it's also what um, you know it was in impressive to see the way they run the dining hall i don't know if you were when you walked through if you were there during a meal but the way they file in you know it's that that, you know hollywood idea that you know it's just like a restaurant where the inmate can go get their food and then pick where to sit they you know the i think for a lot of folks finding out well they eat or they get grab their food and they immediately they sit down at the first available seat they don't just wander around the dining hall so they can pick and choose who they're dining with um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's really an organized, um, you know, set of, of, uh, of, you know, just simply, you know, the rules that they need to follow, but the, the set of, uh, of the, uh, architecture, I guess you could say of the dining hall is, is in a very specific way to try and maintain safety and organization within that, or, I mean, they just walk in and they immediately sit down and, have to have a few minutes to eat. And then when they're done, they can't just hang out. They got to get up and get back outside and head towards something. That's exactly how we ran it in Washington state as well, where inmates grab a tray, they sit down at the next available seat. There's no picking and choosing. It's not about sitting by your buddies. You sit down at the next available seat, eat, get out. Yeah. Well, I'm so probably a better idea for safety and security. Yeah. Yeah. I, you got to figure the the inmates have got to learn. I'm sure it doesn't take them long that, okay, we're just going to line up with who we want to sit with. And that way, as they go through and pick up their tray, because again, it's not like they're not going to, uh, oh, what the hell's the name of that, that awful, oh, Golden Corral, right? <laughs> Golden, they're not going to Golden Corral where yeah. they get to pick and choose from a buffet. Um, they're, they're going, they're grabbing their tray and they're going and sitting down. And then, you know, dumping it at the end um, after they've eaten. And so it's it's an assembly line type setup, which which moves pretty quickly. Real talk. I've never been to a Golden Corral. What's it like? Uh, there's reason why I had trouble remembering the name. I've <laughs> been there once. Don't go back. <laughs> Un- unmemorable. <laughs> right. It's not like all the wings all right. you ate with your friend last night. It's... Uh, it was oh yes i i got about 20 23 in in the tank and they said the record so if, if you set the record you get your meal for free the really? record 55 wings by Holy one person shit. that's a lot of wings that's, 
That is. That's a lot of wings. That's a lot of wings. Uh. I would feel rough the next day. Yeah, I think I'd feel rough right away. It, huh. and, and is that that I think wings... it's a state of mind. Yeah. <laughs> is that uh, in a certain time limit they get? Is it you have to eat it in like an hour? I believe it runs from seven p.m. to nine p.m. So you have two hours to do it. Okay. Huh. That's that's a lot of wings to eat. My goodness. It is, but wings are smaller than like the hot dogs. If you think about hot dog eating contests and what people have managed to do to their bodies for those situations. Yeah. I think it's it's doable to beat that. Not not me, but someone braver than myself can can handle it. Well, there's it's one of the places that I when I moved to Amarillo, that was one of my favorites, the Big Texan, right along Interstate 40. Um, if you could, in an hour, eat a 72-ounce steak, it was free. You think about it, that's four and a half pounds. I mean, you're eating a roast. It's four and a half pounds of meat. Incredible. Did you ever try? Oh, <laughs> hell no. <laughs> no way. No way. I mean, that's, oh my goodness. So it's not only that. You have to eat the you have to eat the 72-ounce steak plus, I think, like shrimp cocktail, uh, a dinner roll and, and a baked potato or something, and you got to drink. You have to complete, which is a drink is not the hard part because the people who know what they're doing, you know, will have have put some food in their mouth and have some, you know, drink it down. They eat it very quickly. Um, I'm sure I'd never get close. Um, but it was a spectacle. They put you up on a stage and they have a clock behind you and everybody cheers you on. It's a real. It's a like I said, it's a spectacle. That, that's unbelievably cool. I I would love to watch something like that. Just <laughs> whether somebody wins or loses. I mean, I, everybody loses from it, but like right. whether you succeed or fail, I guess is the better term. Right. Right. I I It'd fully ex- watch. I fully expect someone like I, Britt would be able to do that. Maybe. Maybe <laughs> if I if I didn't eat a couple of days, I've been known to put away like you know five to eight thousand calories at like a Chinese buffet. Um, maybe. It's a possibility. Oh, that's a lot. That's a lot. That's impressive. We believe in you. Let, let's live podcast it next time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll just record it on my phone and there'll be a mysterious like two hour long podcast that comes up and it's just like me burping and farting a bunch. <laughs> Bonus episode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so one thing that really impressed me at the medium security facility going back to this, yes. switching tracks again, was the dog program. Yes. The dog program is run by an organization called Needs, I believe. Yes. They, we got to see a dog trainer. We got to see some of the inmates with the dogs. And we got to see the dog. One dog opened a door, and then he turned on a light switch and turned off a light switch. They, so they're training service dogs uh, for persons with disabilities. And this particular dog, I believe, was almost ready to go. I believe it was his last day. Mm-hmm. at the facility his his trainer was was up in his room crying apparently because he was devastated he spent a year and a half with this dog who was uh, being taken out of his hands but the dog's going to a good cause helping a uh, high school student with a physical disability and they, they train these dogs every day they, they get to work with them constantly and they get to be their buddies and i asked one of the inmates who was training the dogs like uh, what does this what does training the dog do for you like what is what does this do for your mental state in the in the prison and he said ah, that's an interesting question and i think like think about what i've done 
I, I hurt my community and this is something I can do to give back to the community and like maybe a step towards getting trust back from my community, doing something good in my life rather than some of the bad things I've done. And while it felt a little bit candid, it, it, it's, it also sounded authentic coming from him and I'm, I'm glad it can do something for him. It, it gives them something to look forward to in their day. Absolutely. I think it, these dog pilot programs or any dog program that we have inside these institutions are the best programs that, that we have at institutions. It, it benefits the inmates who are working with the dog, the inmates and the cell block. I, I've, I've seen, you know, 30 year old inmates who are in there for horrible things. Now they're not the trainers of the dogs curled up on the ground, just petting the dog because it's some type of, you know, some type of interaction with, you know, something that's, that's not, you know, either a threat to them, either when it comes to another inmate or, a staff member it's just hey it's just a dog and the dog's just you know lapping up the attention and 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 loving this inmate just for for petting it but uh you know for some of these individuals you find out this is the first time they've ever been responsible for anything else in their life you know they're they're responsible for something other than themselves and that's a great teaching point for for a lot of these folks um that are that are in there for those drug offenses who are just looking to make quick money. They've got a long-term investment in something other than themselves and man, can it, it does a great job for rehab, but it also, if we look where these dogs come from a lot of times, uh, cause it's not just the, the needs programs cause the needs program is pretty specific where they are training labs, golden retrievers is kind of their sweet spot in terms of the breed. But we see other dog programs throughout the country where they are getting the dogs from the local humane societies and training them and then adopting them out to the community. Um, I remember the prison in Lima, Ohio, um, Ohio, where Ohio, they had Ohio. a large, you know, it was, <laughs> yeah. Well, I walked down to this cell block and there was just dogs everywhere, just running from cell to cell, going up and down the, you know, the, the walk and heading into the day room. And it was like, what, what is going on here? It was the first time I had seen a large dog program and it was, they're phenomenal. They're just great programs, um, because it helps out, you know, several levels of society. Um, but this one's great because yeah, I believe, cause I saw the same, it was a, it was a lab. Uh, I think the same dog was getting, a, you know, I think we saw the same dog. Um, earlier that day that then you saw them and they were going to work with a with a teenager that I believe was wheelchair bound right I, I think that's what they said and so that's why they were teaching it how to turn on and off lights and open doors and you know it's just it's a great thing and you think about the amount of the time and investment that goes into that it's it's a wonderful wonderful program so one interesting thing i think about when i think about inmate dog programs is they, they do help to foster empathy. Like anyone who has ever had a pet can tell you it, it does. You, you have to, you're, you have to love someone else and put their needs above yours at times. But also it, it's, it's not your typical prison program in that it is also not based on any kind of criminological theory that would help with rehabilitation. It doesn't necessarily address any kind of criminological need where we're getting to the roots of why people commit crime. Right. But we still find that it does work in terms of 
reducing recidivism rates at times. And it's it seems to be an anomaly in that aspect where no other prison program I can think of does the same thing. Right. No, you're absolutely right. It's it's amazing it, you know, what this does in terms of a positive impact for the inmates. Um and I I can't think of any other program that does as much for them uh, as this does. I I really can't. It's uh it seems to be the best one. My my only complaint is when we did interface with the the inmates who had the the service dogs. I think maybe one student asked a question besides me. It, they froze up. Yeah. <laughs> they froze. They choked. Oh, my, mine were my students did, were Did you experience the same thing? No, my my students asked a lot of questions. So, I now and this is normal. I I kind of kicked things off. I asked the first question. And boy, my students really, they were, you know, you could tell the staff was like, okay, that, that's enough. And they kept asking questions, but I have been there plenty of times, whether it's here in Rhode Island or at other uh, institutions where students have had the opportunity to uh, talk with inmates and man, do they freeze up? It's they, you know, they've got all these questions. And then as soon as we walk out of there, they ask me the question. I'm like, why didn't you ask them? It just, it, you know, the one that makes me the craziest is when we go down to uh, Angola in Louisiana and we have, you know, like two or three inmates where we're allowed to, the students are allowed to chat with them about stuff and they freeze up, don't ask them questions. I was like, I'm the wrong person. I'm not the inmate here. Talk to the, you know, when you have the opportunity, have questions ready to go. That's so frustrating. So frustrating. <laughs> I, I can't answer inmate questions. That's right. not for me. Right. So uh, let, let's talk a little more about the facility, though. It, it's huge. Yeah. It's 29 acres, which is a massive facility. And a lot of that goes to the prison yard. So inmates have a massive rec yard. Yeah. And in the rec yard, there's a lot of gym equipment that they have. The, the plates are like welded onto the bars. So inmates can't take off a plate and whack another inmate with that. Right. Um, this the, the prison itself was constructed between 1990 and 1992, opening in 92. Uh, the average population is around 750, and it costs less to house offenders here. It costs only 82000 a year. That's a bargain. That's a bargain. I mean, that's... It's a bargain. <laughs> it's half price. Uh, it's half off. Just get them out of the minimum <laughs> and put them over in the medium, damn it. It's so much cheaper. <laughs> But they, they have they have a lot of resources here, like yeah. like we were talking about. They have extensive programs, they have extensive industries, and some of the programs we didn't even touch on. They have computer classes for inmates. They have creative writing classes, literacy courses, college courses. They have a cabinet making class, a, a barber class. Inmates in the barbershop look so happy. Yeah, um, they have automotive technology classes and classes for working with sheet metal. And in terms of rehabilitation, they have sex offender treatment. They have substance abuse. They have sexual abuse counseling for inmates who have been sexually abused, uh, domestic relations classes, parenting classes, and anger management classes. It's it's kind of so like got a whole bevy of programs. Yeah, they, they also have a lot of. It's kind of like the medium facility is the heart of. It really is kind of the heart of uh, the Department of Corrections in terms of programming for for all the inmates. And if there's, you know, is I think you know it. They they probably use it as as a place for um, you know trying to you know a goal for the for the inmates at the maximum um, 
or the supermax to try and hey if you get over here if you if you behave for this amount of time don't get any institutional write-ups then get over the medium and that's where we have the programming for all these things and it really you know and it makes sense because it's a larger institution um and you know it's uh they have a lot to offer for the inmates there which is good we that's what we want at, at these prisons we want them to have the availability uh uh to be able to learn some trades or you know get to to improve themselves if possible while they're incarcerated yeah we're dangling the carrot of programs for good behavior and it, it's an awesome incentive that they can offer inmates something to do something to improve themselves they get out and they've got more skills they've, they've got marketability and something to do something that maybe that can help build confidence in themselves and master some kind of craft definitely and that that's something that you know so we, that's the we, we want more states to to be able to to offer uh to their inmates and uh i think uh if uh if we could get other states to do it because i've I've seen plenty of states that do not have near as much as what rhode island offers um if we could actually get people to you know understand why it's important because these individuals are coming back out in society we want them to to have the opportunity to uh to improve themselves yeah offer them some kinds of skills some kinds of training so that they have a better chance of reintegration when they get back out yeah so that's, that's our medium security facility. We're going to move on to the high security center. It's considered close custody here, meaning inmates who get removed from general population. This is either for administrative reasons, like maybe they're in a gang and it's hard to situate them in, in other units with inmates because uh, their, their gang affiliation might create conflicts or they're removed for disciplinary reasons. Somebody who has some kind of behavioral issues. Now, the High Security Center opened in 1981. It holds up to 166 inmates, but has an average population of 80. And annually, this prison costs $225,000 per year per inmate. And what do you think these added costs cover? Why, why is it so expensive, Eric? Heating bill. <laughs> they got to keep the play. Air conditioning, heating. They got to keep that, you know, the water. I mean, it's that's... I. I think just running the facility when you have that few, you know, when, it, when you have a facility for less than 200 people, right? Um, I think it's going to become very expensive just to just to keep the facility open and, and all the utilities running in it. That, that's expensive. Um, so that's a big part of it. Obviously, there's a little more technology inside this institution to make sure because they are a higher security threat um, than the medium. Um, you need uh, a few more staff there so that the inmate to staff ratio is a little bit smaller. And that's what that added cost really is. But I, you know, when you think about if you have a place, an institution uh, of this, this size, um, and you only have 75, 80 inmates in it, it's going to be expensive. Yeah, absolutely agree. Thank you for enlightening us with that um, <laughs> in terms of what the inmates actually have there. It's much more sparse than, yeah. say, the medium. They've got a legal library. They've got a recreational library, so they can pick up a book. They've got a barber shop. They've got a classroom for some classes, and they've got a chapel. Um, they also have what they call a rehabilitation treatment unit called the RTU. 
And inmates here get programs, they get treatment, and they get some structure in their lives. And it's used as an alternative to more restrictive housing. So if inmates opt into this, it sounds like they can they can uh, have a little more freedom in their lives because they're attending classes, they're getting some kind of structure to their sentence. And, and now you've been to the high security center. What are your impressions? Yeah, I was gonna say, at least when I was there, the RTU inmates were the ones who helped, you know, they're kind of like meritorious housing inmates at other institutions, the lower security inmates that are housed at higher security institutions that help run that institution. So they're the ones who have a little bit more freedom. Um, they're helping cook meals, deliver meals. Uh, to inmates in, that are locked down in their cells. Um, so, I mean, it was a very restrictive institution. Um, you know, we have ind- individuals locked down a, a whole lot more often than what we'd see over at the medium. But uh, yeah, it uh, doesn't have near the programming opportunities that the medium did. Um, and, you know, I did find it odd that they built a place that uh, is for such a small amount of people. Um, but I guess, you know, again, tiny state, tiny supermax. Um, but again, it's when they call it their supermax, it really isn't even, it's more of, like you said, it's a close security level institution. And uh, it's really, you know, underneath the level of the maximum inmates. So, um, but it's just a lot more technologically advanced, it seems, than the than the max is. Now, let's move on and talk about the max. Absolutely. So the maximum security prison is the oldest state prison in Rhode Island. It opened in 1878, just nine years after the land was purchased in Cranston. And it looks like an old castle. Yeah. It is modeled on the Auburn style of construction. And Eric, what can you tell us about the Auburn model yeah. of prison? So the Auburn style was the competitive and i think that's interesting that we have competitive architecture styles of prisons um in the history of the united states but we had the philadelphia model which was um a design similar to a a bicycle wheel where we had the cells lined on the outside of the cell block or of the walkway um and that went out like the spokes on a wheel versus uh, the Auburn style, which took over the country here in the United States um, because we were building bigger and better and cheaper building, putting prisons inside of prison. So it's where we could put the tiers of cells. So for those of you listening, if you can envision the prison at uh, from Shawshank, where you saw the tiers of cells stacked on top of one another, um, that's the old Ohio State Reformatory, which was also uh, the same model and very, very gothic, foreboding, castle-like institution. And that's there was that was done with purpose. It was meant to intimidate people to stay out of there, even though these these are America's castles, um, our, our old prisons. But uh, yeah, it's uh, definitely fits the old model. Fits the old model, and in the Auburn model. Inmates would, they, they were all doing forced labor. They, they were often punished by whippings or beatings. Inmates were not even allowed to talk to each other. They couldn't even make eye contact with one another, even though they are working next to each other all day, every day. They, they were made to wear stripes. They had to mar- march next to each other. They could eat next to each other, but no talking. And that stands in contrast to that Philadelphia model that Eric just mentioned, where inmates were housed in cells alone, it was solitary confinement. If they left the cell, they would be made to wear a bag on their head 
So other inmates couldn't recognize them and they were made to wear felt shoes. So other inmates wouldn't necessarily even hear them walking past their doors. So it's, it's not to attract attention. Really, the only human contact they had in the Philadelphia system was clergy. Yeah, They didn't really even talk to the corrections officers very much, from my understanding. But uh, you got to one one really important thing is when we talk about the Philadelphia model, we got to talk about the the importance of mass toilets and mass heating, because that's where we gain those from. Because prior to that, that was only uh, a luxurious thing for individuals in their homes. And many uh, most buildings, most public buildings did not have toilets that went um, for where we had plumbing um, and nor did they have heating throughout those larger buildings. But because of the, the need to have uh, a little bit of heat in the cells and for uh, some type of plumbing so that the, so that the excrement could get outside of the cell without opening up the cell door, we have the invention of mass plumbing uh, as a uh, thankful for that pennsylvania system because who knows if if humankind would have ever been able to develop it without the prison yo that is a fun fact i didn't even know that one thanks yeah. for dropping that yeah <laughs> Two, three, break. so uh back to the maximum security prison this this was originally used as the prison for pretrial inmates and sentenced inmates. It was like the default facility. And then prison populations start to grow in Rhode Island, and they had to expand out to additional facilities. As far as the capacity, it can hold up to 466 inmates currently. The average population, though, is 312, and it costs about $100,000 annually to house offenders here. It's, it's a mixed population where it's inmates that are serving long bids and those who have been transferred that have shorter sentences who show some kind of serious disciplinary issues or behavioral problems. Now, I, I've been on a tour yep. through here in the past, and I know you have as well. Yep. What are your impressions of the, the facility? Well, you, you know, we got to you get nostalgic with these old, great, um, you know, castle like structures. And, you, you know, it's nice being able to go visit history because it's a living history you go walk into these places you know the few of the other ones that i've been to like this like the old ohio state reformatory or the kentucky state penitentiary um that look like this that still look um like the castles with the tears on them it's uh that that's impressive however housing people in these places is it's tough their security risks you know um that staff that walk by those bars are just they're just targets for individuals in the cells that are really bored and so when you have a high you know a really high security prison so maximum security prison where individuals are locked down for given time periods they are looking for something to do to change up their routine and possibly get in a little bit of trouble or you know, you talk about some of these individuals that are have been shipped over that are serving shorter sentences, but have caused some type of disciplinary issue. This is the type of setting where they get into even more trouble because they're able to grab the staff or throw things at staff or attack them through the bars. Yeah, it's still I, bars are not something that you see commonly in more modern prisons. And it is weird to see to me still. And a lot of the design 
of the facility itself has not been updated. So one of the weird things is you walk onto a tier and the, the second story of the tier has a, only a small catwalk with yeah. a with a guardrail that's at about not even quite waist height for me. It, it feels like it'd be so easy to fall off of that tier or if two inmates get into some kind of altercation for, for one to push another off of the tier. And I, I've been assured that that has happened over time. But yeah. it feels like a liability that... Absolutely. That, um, I, I don't know how they, they still keep it or why they still keep it as it is, but maybe it's working for them. I, I don't know. They they all seem to be, you know, and I think, you know, a, a lot of them have caged in that second, third, and fourth tier if they have the fourth tier. Um, that then also becomes a little bit of a, you think it would be a liability because that, you know, where you're, where you have fencing going all the way up from the second floor to the, to the third or fourth floor, all the way up to the ceiling. It just seems like, you know, you're, you're creating a place where it's really damn difficult to get away from those individuals that are in their cells or, um, you know, if something does go down on that catwalk, it's, you know, it's really congested. Um, you know, again, it, we think about why that system was created. It was cheaper. They could build them bigger, incarcerate more people. Um, doesn't mean it was the smartest, um, smartest build. No, no, no. They... They didn't necessarily have the best design ideas. And I think we've come a long way in terms of prison architecture, which is can be a whole down the line episode in and of itself. Right. There's so much to talk about with prison architecture, but in terms of the design, it's something that we maybe learn from our mistakes and hopefully are getting better at in terms of safety and security for both inmates and yeah. staff alike. Yep. Cause that that's one of the biggest things is, you know, we're not just talking about staff safety, we're inmate security. And, and safety as well, because it, those catwalks are dangerous places. Yeah, it, just because you're sent to prison does not mean that there should be any compromise on in a person's safety. They're still a person. Absolutely. Now, the, the maximum security facility, they employ 190 inmates. And you're going to see this in many facilities, but they, they help run the facility by working in the kitchen, working in the laundry, working in the barbershop, the library. And then they have porters. These, these inmates who are working in the housing modules, the recreation areas, and the industries. And industries here, they've got a print shop and a carpenter shop. So not nearly as much as we have to offer in medium, but these are also inmates who are given fewer privileges because they are in maximum. Yeah, yeah, but it's good that they still have some things available to them so that they can do, um, give them some opportunity to, to work um, learn some skills, maybe get a certificate of some type. So it is, it's still, it's still good that they have something available to them. Yeah, completely agree. Inmates need something to do and something like they need outlets to learn. Now, if we're going to talk about security for the facility, they have five observation towers. They have a double chain link security fence with razor wire, and they have an electronic system that can detect any kind of escape attempts. Now, I don't know if you heard about it, but there was a major incident here in August. Did you catch wind of this? No, I did not. So it was described by an officer as a riot on, if you look to any of the news on it, it says, no, this was not a riot. But it was a major incident that was prompted by a fight. It was a, a fight between two inmates out on the yard. 
different gangs, some kind of fight prompted by gang affiliations. And an inmate hit another inmate, knocked him out, and broke his jaw. So officers rush in to break up the fight. And inmates refused to lock down. And so this, uh, this could have been like a Carrier situation. Thankfully, they were able to contain and control the inmates, get them back inside. But at the time, Cranston police showed up and Rhode Island State Police showed up outside the facility for backup. They, they didn't enter, but they showed up. And uh, one corrections officer did get injured in the scuffle and received minor injuries, uh, but he was checked out and um, and released from the infirmary. No, I, that's... Uh... That's, um, or I should say, check, he was checked out and released from the hospital. So that's what I've got for the maximum. We will pick up next time to talk about the intake service center, the women's facility, and some of the current issues we're looking at with Rhode Island DOC at the present. All right. So we're in for another two-parter. Fantastic. That's how big the Rhode Island Department of Corrections is. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Uh, but before we go. We have a movie minute. I think we? it's time for a movie, movie minute. Movie minute. Producer Britt, let's put 60 seconds on the clock. So this week, I watched 1990s Arachnophobia, directed by Frank Marshall, legendary producer for Steven Spielberg and others. Uh, Jeff Daniels is a wine-loving doctor who moves to a small town in California that gets invaded by South American killer spiders. The spiders kill the only other town doctor, leaving Daniels along with town exterminator John Goodman to deal with the malevolent spiders who have invaded his wine cellar before it's too late for his town and his country. Um, I don't know, two and a half out of five. It sucks. It's silly. It's stupid, but it's fun. Why is the, <laughs> and that's the, movie. Why is the doctor responsible for getting rid of spiders? Um, I, I don't know because they're in his house eventually i guess that's kind of the big twist is they're living in his wine cellar but it's not a big twist it like it it telegraphs it from like you know in the entire movie away okay so you say I, give it a I miss just, I, I don't know it, it's it's amazing it's amazing that uh, that these little creatures have become the total fear of so many people in society i don't know i i just don't find them that terrifying Yo, spiders are spooky, have, have dude. I, I don't know about you. When I see a on. big one, like like what, a spider bigger than like a quarter is enough to go, ah, ah and uh, give me a real startle. <laughs> if they're crawling on me, then yeah. But otherwise, you know, it's, yeah. it's no big deal. They're just, especially around here, we've only got like two types of poisonous spiders and like neither of them are that lethal. So I, I don't know. It's they're They're just there doing their thing, eating all the flies and stuff. You know, they're doing a service for us. Right. Right. Yeah, but, let him, let but you're a goth. Exactly. You command you're, you're spiders. <laughs> I do. Yeah. Uh, like, during the pandemic, um, I was driving to work every day, and one day I just like got in my car, and in my passenger seat, there's a spider web and a spider sitting on it. And I was like, "Hey, what's up, spider buddy?" And uh, you know, no one. It was a pandemic, so no one used my passenger seat for months and months, and so I just let the spider live there for months. And then one day I found him uh, curled up dead in the cup holder. And I was like, RIP, little spider friend. Uh-huh. I, I like that. that well, that's I can... uh, magnanimous of you. 
Yeah, yeah. That's it's, the the only time I've ever really had a had a jump from a spider is I just again this is lots of stories from from Texas, right? Is I just happened to be out jogging one day in Amarillo, and uh, you know I'm running along, and I, I there out of the corner of my eye because when you're jogging, you're always looking out in front of you. You're not staring straight down at the ground. I I think I see mm-hmm. a leaf blow across the road, and then I. Hits me. Um, this is West Texas. There's no trees. There's no leaves. And I looked down, and it was a it was a tarantula. And I, I it's definitely the highest I've ever jumped in my life. <laughs> and I I don't know. I shrieked like a little like a little kindergartner. <laughs> but uh, um, when I told the people around me about the story, they said, "Oh well, did you see its? Did you see the its mate? Said, what?" And they said, "Yeah, oh, it's migration season. There they'll be." you know, they'll be together, it's mate, and then there'll be a bunch of others. And, you know, at first I was like, God, they're just messing with me. They're just trying to screw with the, the you know, the the fool from up north. Um, but no, sure enough, they have a mass migration of tarantulas that you'll just see hundreds of them going across a road, moving to the other side of, <laughs> of the road. But I didn't, I only saw that one, but it was big enough that it, you know, like, you know, it was about the size of your hand. And, uh, you know, definitely definitely surprised me but other than that i i think i've been okay that is pretty spooky yeah i don't yeah i don't have arachnophobia but that would make me um, shit my pants now, what, what prompted you to watch arachnophobia yeah what brought that um, on my my girlfriend put it on yeah and you know I was, it was a dumb movie i was working at the time but like i was like you know what this looks too dumb to ignore so um, all right, that that this has been movie, movie minute, minute. Movie minute, movie minute, movie minute, movie minute. It's something nice to take us out of uh, the the sourness of prison sometimes. Sure, sure. The CG world is dark, so we need something to lift us out of there. Yes, and it's mm-hmm. a promising new segment. Brit watches a good amount of movies, and I, I'm sure yeah. we'll we'll have some good stuff. Until next time, this has been Prison Breakdown. Please like, rate five stars and subscribe i'm professor beckstraw and i'm professor eric bronson until next time it's lights out